He'd lived there his whole life. It was his home, not just him. His dad, his dad's dad, his dad's dad, dad. And he was royalty. His uncle was the king. So as he was growing up, he did what every kid dreamt in his town. He, he got to run around and do whatever he wanted. He ran through the palace. He ran through the temple. He knew all the secret passageways through the town, getting into trouble like every elementary kid would. You know, the things that make the grandmas say, those measly kids, you know those grandmas down the road, right? Running when he should be walking, yelling when she, he should be whispering, throwing things that were never designed to be thrown, like any kid, right? But it was his home. And when he said he was from Jerusalem, there was this twinkle in his eye, this pride, because everyone wanted to be from Jerusalem. It was the, the best town to live in. That's what he was convinced. That's what everyone believed at the time. Every Jew wanted to live in Jerusalem because thousands of people would, would pilgrimage to his town every year to worship because it wasn't just the king's city. It wasn't just the city of peace. That's what it means. It, it's God's city. It's the place of God's temple where God resided and There were stories of men like David and Solomon recounting the glory days of his town. Everyone wanted to live in Jerusalem, and it was his home. But as Isaiah was growing up, the tide started to change. And it it wasn't the town that he once knew. It wasn't as safe as he once knew. There was these rumors that started to swirl through the town. Have you heard of Sennacherib? Have you heard of this king... He's starting to ransack all these towns around us. Maybe we're not as secure. Maybe we're not as safe as we once thought. It was in 721 BC that the Jews had a a run-in with the Assyrians. The 10 northern tribes, they were wiped out completely by the Assyrians. And the Judeans, the two southern tribes, they were spared barely. But 20 years later, the year 701 BC, and there's a new king in town, a king that everyone needed to take seriously. His name was Sennacherib. And he wasn't just a politician. He wasn't just a a diplomat. He was a dictator. He was a military dictator who wanted submission and and got what what he wanted all the time, every time, by brute force. He was a man to be feared. And he was the king of the Assyrians. And there are these rumors that were true that Sennacherib and his army of 200,000 men, they started picking off city after city, after city, all around Jerusalem, making a city, destroying 46 of the fortified cities around Jerusalem. And the people of Jerusalem knew that they were next. He was saving the best for last. And then, and then he overtook Lachish. Now, you've got to understand some of the, the history King Hezekiah was the king at the time. He was a, a great king, not a perfect king, but he was a, a great king and did a lot of good things to the people of Israel. But he had what we would call a, a stubborn foreign policy. He had a pretty hard line against the Assyrians. Now, the policy of his predecessor was very soft towards the Assyrians, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. His predecessor would pay the Assyrians tribute. But when Hezekiah became king, he said, I'm not doing that. I'm not paying off the Assyrians. They're not getting any money. They're not getting any respect which doesn't always go very well when you're dealing with the most powerful nation in the world. But he decided that, hardline, not dealing with the Assyrians. Instead, he turned to Egypt. Egypt, not as powerful as the Assyrians. Even our text calls Egypt a broken reed. If you lean on a broken reed, what happens? It breaks and it pierces you and it, it hurts you in the long run. It promises but underdelivers. That was Egypt. But still, Egypt served as a security blanket for Hezekiah, 
until Sennacherib set up his base camp in Lachish, because it was on the road. It was on the road from Jerusalem to Egypt. So now that that town was conquered, there was no way for Hezekiah to send any help all the way down to Egypt. They were all alone. What was there to do? You were just a small town. It was just Jerusalem against an entire army of almost 200,000 men. There was no Egypt to help. There was nowhere to go. I can only imagine that the whole city questioned God. And Jerusalem is asking, God, how is this fair? I mean, think of what had happened with Hezekiah. Hezekiah did everything right. He was God's king. He came in and he instituted reform and vision in the best way possible. He took down the high places. He got rid of idolatry. He reinstalled and initiated worship of God in the temple. He did everything right. So God, where are you? Isn't blessing supposed to be followed by obedience? But not for the Israelites. They found themselves in battle, not in the midst of blessing. And they're asking God, how is this fair? God, what are you doing? God, where are you? God, why aren't you delivering us? So Hezekiah, he found his back against the wall. He didn't know what to do. So he changed his stance and he decided it was time to pay off the Assyrians. Sennacherib had a pretty high tribute price. So where did Hezekiah go to find the gold? The temple. So he begrudgingly marches up to the top of the temple mount and he melts the gold off the temple doors. 1,000 pounds of gold and 10 tons of silver and pays off Sennacherib, hoping that he can get the king to back down, hoping that Jerusalem isn't city number 47 to be destroyed. But it didn't work. Sennacherib didn't back down. It was just a ruse, and Hezekiah just found himself 1,000 pounds of gold poorer. Imagine what it would be like to be Isaiah, the spiritual advisor to the king with his family, Locked in Jerusalem, a city under siege. Can you imagine what that'd be like? The olive oil would have ran out a long time ago. The bread rations would be diminishing by day. The cisterns of water would be almost dried up. Nobody in, nobody out for days, weeks, and months. I can imagine what it'd be like to be Hezekiah, to be Isaiah. It was in this time that many believe that Hezekiah built what we now know as Hezekiah's tunnel. If you go to Israel with us in October, it's one of the coolest things we'll see trying to get out from the city to try to find at least some water. But then they heard it. They heard this voice, this booming voice from outside the city wall. The accent was thick, but they recognized it. It was Hebrew. Isaiah 36, verse 4, says this, And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what are the rest of, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all who put trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah is removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. 
That was the voice of the Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh is not a name, it's a title. It was one of the highest ranking officials in all of Assyria, right underneath the king. He came on behalf of Sennacherib to give this special message to Judah's king. And it's almost as if you can feel the blood start to boil in Isaiah as the Rabshakeh begins to blaspheme his God, the one who he spent his whole life worshiping. So right after this message, three of Hezekiah's top diplomats, his cabinet, essentially, they run to the top of the wall to try to reason with the Rabshakeh. And their first request was this, hey, uh, can you stop speaking in Hebrew? Like we know Aramaic, the people behind us don't know Aramaic, but can you just talk to us in Aramaic so they can't hear you? They knew better than that. What was the point? He was talking in Hebrew so that the whole people could hear them. It was a classic propaganda technique. He was trying to instill fear into the hearts of the entire city of Jerusalem. And I can promise you, it worked. He wanted Hezekiah to back down and bow down. Even in the midst of their request, the Rabshakeh doubled down and said, Hezekiah, you're dead meat. Surrender now or die. And all of you people, don't let your king fool you into trusting God. That was his message. I can only imagine that the entire city of Jerusalem stood in this stunned silence. Their home, their life, their work, their identity, their family, their everything was being threatened, stood against them in the face. They had two options, didn't they? What do you do with news like that? Because they knew the power of the army that stood against them. You can do one of two things. You can surrender. What happens if they surrender? Well, they're deported to a foreign land, maybe a thousand miles away. They lose their family. They lose their identity. They lose their home. They lose their job. They lose everything. And they're intermixed with different people groups to be forgotten in the pages of history. That is if they survive the walk to their new home. That's surrender. What's the other option? Fight back. Did you hear what the Rabshakeh said? He said, made a wager with, uh, with Hezekiah. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find 2,000 men to, to sit on those horses. <laughs> what does that mean? There weren't even 2,000 fighting men in Jerusalem. How is an army of not even 2,000 men with no military supplies, how are they going to ever defeat a military of 2,000? They're not. So if they fight against Sennacherib and his army, they're all going to die probably in a pretty inhumane way. Surrender and lose everything or fight back and surely die. Yeah, both sound like pretty good options, don't they? So if you were King Hezekiah, if you were the ruler, the leader, the king over the city of Jerusalem, what would you have done? I know what I would have done. Even if I wasn't Hezekiah, if I was his diplomat, I said, Hezekiah, it's a no-brainer, surrender. I want to live. Don't you want to live? I don't, even if that means we're living in another country, we have no chance the chance of us winning this game is zero. Surrender now. Let's not lose our lives. Is that what you'd say? That's what I'd say. Hezekiah was a better man than I. He didn't stand in this arrogant confidence, but at the same time, he didn't surrender. He let the people see his raw emotion. He tore his clothes, which is a sign of mourning. He put on sackcloth, the universal sign of grief, and he went to the house of the Lord. He went to the temple. He went to the temple to pray. Now, for Hezekiah, if you wanted to commune with God, that's where you went. 
You went to the temple. Remember, the position of our text in redemptive history is a little bit different than where we are today. We stand on the other side of the cross. Today, if, if you know Christ, if you've been adopted into God's family, then you're his temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. We don't have to go to a place, a location to worship God. But that wasn't the case for Isaiah. God's temple, God's presence dwelled within the temple. If people wanted to worship, if they wanted to talk to God, they would go to the temple. Now, certainly God wasn't confined by the temple. We see examples in the Old Testament of people talking to God, worshiping God outside the temple. But if you want to talk to God, that's where you go. If you want to worship God, that's where you go. Where does Hezekiah go? He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple to talk to God, to pray. And after praying, he sent his top officials, his cabinet, to his trusted spiritual advisor, Isaiah. And here was the message that he left for him. Uh, Chapter 37, verse 3. And they, the cabinet, said to him, who's Isaiah, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom the master of the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnants that's left. Hear what Hezekiah said. Distress, rebuke, disgrace, those could all be translated as blasphemy. Have you heard the words of the Rabshakeh? Have you heard the words of the king of Assyria blaspheming God? But then what does he ask Isaiah to do? Or what does Isaiah ask, what does Hezekiah ask Isaiah to do? To pray. To pray. Hezekiah didn't know what to do. They didn't have a training on how to handle a situation like this and how to be a king school. He had no clue what to do. So he went to the Lord to pray and he asked Isaiah to pray. I love Isaiah's response in verse 5 of chapter 37. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words you've heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Well, that's kind of best case scenario, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine getting that news if you're King Hezekiah? Two-part prophecy. One, the king's gonna hear a rumor and return to his own land. And then two, he's gonna get assassinated. I can't think of a better response for Hezekiah to receive. It's the best case scenario. But Hezekiah still had a choice, didn't he? Was he going to trust the promise of Isaiah's prophecy? Because the test wasn't over yet. As 37, as chapter 37 continues, it, it's almost a mirror of chapter 36. The same thing happens again. But at first, Hezekiah thought that he was off the hook because King Sennacherib got distracted. He moved 10 miles north from Lachish to Libna, and the Ethiopians were there, and he had the skirmish with the Ethiopians, and, and Hezekiah thinks, so we're, we're safe. But the Rabshakeh knew better, and he sends a, a pretty pointed letter to Hezekiah that says, don't worry, I haven't forgotten about you. We're coming for you. And he takes it a step farther and, and says, don't let your God deceive you. We're stronger than him. So what does Hezekiah do for the second time? Well, verse 14. 
Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. It's like he took the letter out and he just presented it to the Lord. And he prayed, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. I love this prayer because it's raw and it's real and it's honest. And Hezekiah doesn't start where I would expect. I'd expect him to start with, with an ask. Like, God, save us. God, what are you doing? But he starts by declaring who God is. It's even a step beyond praise. He declares who God is. It's almost as if he's shouting to his own soul, God is great, and he's powerful. He's bigger than the Assyrians. He can't be defeated, even in moments when we don't feel like it. God can't be defeated, and he reminds his heart, his soul, in the midst of his prayer, that God is great. And he asks, he pleads that God might ask, or that God might answer his prayer, and that he might deliver his people. Verse 21, it's almost like this happened immediately. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah and said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Who have you mocked and reviled? Against who have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? You see what God is saying. He's asking Sinatra through Isaiah, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> do you realize who you've reviled? Clearly you, you don't, because otherwise you wouldn't have done this. Verse 26, have you not heard that I, God, determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what I now bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass in the housetops, blighted before it's grown. I love verse 26, because we can't escape our theme, sovereign overall, as we look through the entirety of the book of Isaiah. What God is saying is, Sinatra, I'm the one who let you conquer those cities. You've been operating with the leash, not above my purview. And God is saying, I knew that you were going to do this. I ordained you to do this, even before the foundation of the world. God is sovereign overall. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. He is always in control of the present, and even the future. I love that our theme comes out even here in this text. Verse 28. I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you've raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. It's an agricultural analogy, an animal analogy, isn't it? putting a bit in the mouth of a horse or even a hook through the nose of an animal, and then you can pull it wherever you want it to go. That's the theme here. God promises exactly what Isaiah prophesied earlier, that Sinatra would return home because God would be the one who would put a hook in his nose and drag him right back 
to Nineveh. But what happened next, how God delivered, was beyond the wildest dreams of his people. Look at verse 36. I'll start in verse 35. God said this, For I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Verse 36, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Asharadon, his son, reigned in his place. 185,000. Is that a typo? That's wild. Can you imagine what that would have been like to be King Sennacherib? You wake up early in the morning and you look out and your entire army is dead. There's no other explanation for that except the hand of Yahweh. There's no other solution except to meander back home and come up with some lame excuse of how your entire army died of some sort of a plague so that you don't give any credit to God and and that you avoid the truth and try to save a little bit of face. But then can you imagine what it would be like to be Isaiah, to be Hezekiah, to be one of the people of Jerusalem, you go to bed thinking the game's over. You're down by 30 in the last 30 seconds. There is no hope of a comeback. And then you wake up in the morning and everyone's singing, we are the champions. <laughs> this would have been an incredible moment. There hadn't been a party, a celebration, anything in Jerusalem for weeks, maybe months. And now they were free in a moment because God acted miraculously on behalf of his people like he promised. It would have been an incredible celebration that we would have loved to be at. In the face of adversity, when we're confronted with calamity, when our back is up against the wall, where do we go? Where do you go? Where do I go? The text demands one big question. It's our big idea tonight. When our back's against the wall, will you trust or will you fall? I can guarantee that Hezekiah is not the only one who knows what it's like to have his back against the wall. I'm convinced we learn the most about our faith in the face of adversity. When it feels like there's not a good option, when it feels like there's nowhere to go, when it feels like everything is pushing against us and every sane person would take the easy way out. We learn the most about our faith in the face of adversity. We know what it's like to have our back against the wall. Sunday night, you have a huge exam on Monday morning. You know you haven't done a great job studying and preparing, but as you start to study, there's no hope. You're in way over your head. And you know you need this class to graduate, and you know that you need this exam to pass the class, and it's not going to happen. And you start running through all the scenarios in your mind. How am I going to talk to my advisor? How am I going to talk to my parents? And then all the unethical solutions come through your mind because it's an online exam. And you know there's some ways around being completely honest. Your back's up against the wall. What do you do? You and your fiance and your significant other, or significant other, you're hanging out for the third night in a row. First two nights... You've done a pretty good job maintaining your boundaries. Cost a couple lines, but if you're honest, you're pretty impressed you didn't go any farther. But that third night, 
the drive is stronger than it had been in a long time. And everything in you is saying, just go for it. Everybody's doing it. It's not a big deal. You're committed to each other anyway. Nobody's going to know. Your back is up against the wall. What do you do? Your boss came to you for the third time in a month and asked you to do something unethical. The first two times you said, no, this time was different. This time, there was a little PS at the end of his request. Yeah, if you don't take care of this, don't bother showing up on Monday. What do you do? Your back's up against the wall. It's Friday night, and your friends are all going out to party. You've said no to the previous two invitations. You know what's going to happen at this event, and it's going to be less than wholesome. But you know that if you say no for the third time, three strikes, you're out. <laughs> no hope that you're going to get invited again, and you're going to lose these friends. Your back's up against the wall. What do you do? It's late. It's weeknight. You're alone in your room, scrolling through Instagram, and that ad pops up. You know exactly what ad I'm talking about. It's that ad that's designed to get you to go down that bunny trail that you've been down more times than you'd like to admit. And you think, yeah, nobody would know. What's three, five minutes of indulgence tonight? Not a big deal. Your back's up against the wall. What do you do? It's been a rough week. Maybe it was the kids at school. Maybe... It was an annoying coworker, maybe you just worked a ton. And you've been doing a really good job staying away from the hard stuff for a year. But this week had been the hardest one in a long time. And you know right where it is. It's right on the top shelf in the pantry. And you know if you have a couple too many shots, you're gonna forget about your week in a hurry. And that desire, that pull is strong. Your back's up against the wall, what do you do? We know the feeling, don't we? We know when there's two options, when there's a really easy one and there's a hard one. Do we surrender? Do we give in? Or do we withstand and resist? I'm convinced that often we do neither. We find this obscure middle option that I like to call distraction. You know what I'm talking about? When our back is up against the wall, when we're feeling the temptation, when the enemy comes knocking on our door and he keeps knocking and he keeps knocking and he keeps knocking, we distract ourselves. And there's a million things we could distract ourselves with. We turn on Netflix and we start binge watching a show or we say, yeah, I'm just going to go run to the gym and I'm going to go work out for a while and then this desire is going to go away. Or I'm just going to sleep for a really long time and hopefully when I wake up in the morning, I'm not going to have any problems anymore anyway. Or we call all of our friends and we try to hang out with as many people as possible. Or we say, I just need to let off some steam. I'm going to go find a punching bag. I'm going to go to the driving range. I'm going to go do something to let this anger out. And we distract ourselves. Does it work? Eh, maybe. Maybe sometimes. Depends on what distraction we use. Sometimes, in the long run, it actually leaves us in a worse place than before. Hezekiah didn't distract himself when his back was against the wall. He did three things that I think all of us need to do every time we face that battle, that temptation, that pull from the enemy. Here's the first, is pray immediately. Pray immediately. 
The battle begins on our knees. Victory starts with surrender. When we come to the place, when we find ourselves a place when we realize that there's nowhere we can go, we've got to pray. That's what Hezekiah did. He wasted no time talking to God. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He marched to the temple and he prayed. He didn't look like a cookie cutter Christian. He didn't look like he had his act together. He went to God in the midst of his hopelessness. God is not waiting for you to conjure up this hope and faith before you talk to him. He already knows how you feel. So just talk to him. Share your heart. Share how you feel in that moment with him. We've got to pray. Don't delay in talking to God in prayer. Is prayer your first option or your last resort? Is prayer your spare tire or your steering wheel, as one church sign said a couple weeks ago? When confronted with calamity, is God our first call or our last call? When the enemy attacks and fires that arrow right in that kink of armor that gets you in the right spot, do we pray? When confronted with a frustrating conflict in your friend group, do you pray? When that annoying coworker tries to get a rise out of you for the third time in the last hour, do you pray? When we get a phone call that nobody ever wants to receive, do we pray? God has to be our first call. We've got to ask for help. What does Hezekiah do next? Well, number two, he sends for reinforcements. Send for reinforcements. You know that Hezekiah had a man that he trusted more than a brother. He had a spiritual advisor who he needed in his corner. So when Hezekiah was done praying, what does he do? He sends a message to Isaiah, the rock. We get a glimpse of Isaiah, the man, in this text. We don't have that very much in this book. His resolve, his faith, Isaiah was talking to God even before Hezekiah came to find him. But when Hezekiah sends for Isaiah, what does he ask for? Does he ask for a hug? Does he ask for support and encouragement? He doesn't even ask for wisdom. What does he ask Isaiah to do? To pray. Isaiah, I need you to pray. We all need an Isaiah in our life on speed dial. We need someone who has that rock solid relationship with God, who we know the moment we text them, the moment that we call them, they're going to drop anything and they're going to pray and intercede on our behalf. We need an Isaiah. And if you have that Isaiah, which is a huge gift, by the way, when was the last time you actually reached out to them and asked for prayer? If God's given you the gift, then man, we've got to use it. Some of you have been trying this white-knuckle Christianity where we just grip the side of the table and we hold on as tight as we can and we say, I can do this by myself. I'm strong enough. I'm, I'm good enough. I don't need help. It doesn't work very well. I've tried it. God's given us the gift of one another. We need an Isaiah in our corner who can be praying for us. We need spiritual reinforcements. We need partners in prayer. You know, what frustrates me a little bit about this account, if I'm being honest, is that God does not promise to rescue immediately. He didn't rescue Hezekiah right away. There was this prophecy from Isaiah, and then what happened? I don't know, days, weeks, maybe months went by, 
He got another letter, another threat. He goes and prays again. There was a pretty significant gap between the promise and the deliverance. But Isaiah waited with patience, and that's our third step tonight, is wait with patience. I hate waiting. And over and over again in our study of Isaiah, we're commanded, we're exhorted to wait. Because in our life, there's a gap between God's promise and God's fulfillment. And what we do with the gap matters. If you're dating or you're engaged, are you going to trust God's design for purity? Or are you going to say, eh, it's not a big deal? If you're single, maybe you've been asking God for a relationship for days, weeks, months, years, and the desire is as strong as it's ever been to be in that relationship. And you know that you could download Hinge and you could find somebody. Probably wouldn't be a relationship that God would approve of, but at least it would fill the void. Are you going to trust that God is going to fulfill those deep relational needs in himself? Or are you going to surrender when the boss comes and asks you to do something you know you can't do, are you going to trust and say, yeah, this might cost me my job, but I'm going to do what I know is right? Or are you going to give in? When you face that conflict in that relationship, in that friend group, are you going to trust that God desires reconciliation and wants you to restore that relationship? Or are you going to sweep things under the rug and then go tell everyone else about how they hurt you? There's a gap between God's promise and God's fulfillment. Are you going to trust? Tonight, I want to finish with Psalm 46. If you have your Bible, turn there. I can't prove this, but a lot of people think that Psalm 46 was written after our account. That maybe it was Hezekiah, maybe it was Isaiah, that they wrote this psalm in response to God's miraculous deliverance. And when I read this account, it definitely makes sense to me. But here's where I want to leave us tonight. Just think about the words of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we won't fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its dwelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Hmm. I wonder where that's coming from. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks 
the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Don't miss verse 10. Be still and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations and I'll be exalted in the earth. There's our waiting again, isn't it? The Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, how we long to be men and women like Hezekiah when we find our back against the wall. Instead of surrendering or instead of just distracting ourselves, may we be quick to turn to you, quick to ask for prayer support, and then give us the strength to wait, knowing that the answer, the deliverance, it doesn't always come immediately, but trusting that you're good, that you're going to take care of us, and that you're working all things together for our good and for your glory. May we be your people who are still and who wait on you, trusting you as our God, as our rock, as our fortress, as our deliverer. In Jesus' name, amen.